see if you can fill in this blank. You ready? Respect your elders. Yes. Good job. Y'all passed the test. Good work. You don't win any prizes. Sorry. Most of us have probably heard that phrase a time or two in our lives. For me growing up, it was probably a phrase that I needed to hear often because to be very honest, when I was a youngster, I didn't have much respect for my elders. I don't know if it was because I grew up with no father in the house for the longest time or what, but I had no respect for those that were older than me. I stole from my mother. I stole from my family. In fact, I got caught coming out of a house and was thrown into jail for stealing. The first thing I did when I was thrown into jail was to carve a filthy word on the floor of the jail cell. I could care less about my elders. Even after my mother married my stepdad and he somewhat straightened me out, I still got sent to the office over 20 times as a 7th grader in school. And that was when you actually got SWATs. The principal stopped giving me SWATs because he said they were doing no good. I would make fun of my teachers. I would carry on in school. I was a rebel without a clue. I can remember one time getting sent to the office with a friend, and I knew we were going to get a SWAT, and he was very nervous because he hardly ever got in trouble. And he asked, is this going to hurt? And I said, well, no. And we got our SWATs, and as we were walking back to class, he was visibly in pain, and he said, I thought you said it didn't hurt. And I replied, it doesn't hurt me. I was so used to getting SWATs that they just didn't bother me. Last week, we started talking about deacons, and this week, we want to talk about elders. But we're not going to talk about elders in a sense of someone that's older than you, but today we're going to talk about elders as a biblical office inside the church. And that age-old saying that is used when speaking of someone older still should be applied to elders in the church as well. And so today, we're going to first see the qualifications of church leadership. And then we'll see the charismatic nature of church leadership. Then we'll see the Christ-likeness of church leadership. And remember that we're using a book uh, called The Nine Marks of a Healthy Church by Mark Dever, if you want to get it. And we're using that book, or I've used that book for this series. And all these points I'll be sharing with you this morning concerning elders comes from, comes out of that book. If you have your scripture, 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 7 this morning, 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 7, I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, 
hospitable, able to teach. Not a drunkard, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. May God bless the reading of his word this morning, and may we take it and apply it to our lives and understand that this is God's inerrant and true word for us today. Let's first see this morning the biblical qualifications for church leadership. Now, I'm not going to go through these one by one like I did last week when we talked about deacons. You can go back and listen to that message and hear about those character qualifications as we looked at last week in verses 8 through 13 last week of 1 Timothy chapter 3. Some of the qualifications are the same, and I pointed out the differences last week between deacon and elder in concern for the character qualifications. As a pastor, one thing that I pray for is that God would provide good leaders in our church. In particular, I pray that God will place in our church men whom God has called to be elders or overseers. Those words are used interchangeably in the Bible. I believe that if God has gifted a man in the church, and if after prayer he recognizes his gifts, then he should be set apart by the church as an elder. Now, you may be surprised to know that all churches have had someone that has performed the function of elders, even if they were not called elders by name. The two most common names for this office in the New Testament are episkopos, which is the word overseer, which we looked at in 1 Timothy, and presbuteros, which is the word elder. Often today, when Baptists in particular hear that word elder, they immediately think of, of like Presbyterians. However, when the Congregationalists first came about in the 16th century, they stressed eldership. And throughout the 18th and 19th centuries, elders could be found in Baptist churches. In fact, the first president of the Southern Baptist Convention, W.B. Johnson, wrote a book where he strongly advocated for the idea of a plurality of elders in the local church. But somehow the practice of having elders fell out of use almost entirely in Baptist churches. And no one's really sure why. It could have been in attention to Scripture. It could have been the pressures of life on the frontier where churches were springing up at this uh, amazing rate. The practice of cultivating congregational leadership stopped amongst Baptist churches. However, the conversation of reviving of this biblical office continued in Baptist publications. And as late as the 20th century, Baptist publications referred to leaders by the title of elder. 
But as the 20th century continued on, the idea of elder seemed to vanish until today when it has become very um, useful in many Baptist churches. But it, it's unusual for a Baptist church to have elders. There's now this growing trend to go back to that, the biblical office of elders. And I believe for good reason, if it was needed in the New Testament, in the scriptures where we clearly see it laid out, and if it was used in the New Testament, in the scriptures where we clearly see it laid out, then my belief is that it's needed now and it is to be useful to us now. The Bible gives us a clear model of a plurality of elders in each local church. We're never given a specific number. It doesn't say, well, here's the number of elders that you should have in each and every local church of a particular congregation. But the New Testament refers to elders in the plural in the local churches. Acts chapter 14, Acts chapter 20, Acts chapter 21, Titus chapter 1, James chapter 5 all references to elders plural i can't think of anything more useful in pastoral ministry than for a pastor to have a recognized group of men in the church as elders for a pastor to have a group of men that that the congregation has recognized as gifted and godly will only be a benefit to the pastor's work These men are to be a supplement to the pastor's wisdom as they pray and as they talk over spiritual matters. This, I believe, is why it's crucial to have elders and why the New Testament gives us elders as an example. Whenever possible, a local church should have a plurality of elders instead of a lone pastor who is the only elder, and they should be people that are rooted in the congregation, not just hired staff from the outside. Now, this doesn't mean that as the pastor, I don't have a distinctive role. However, fundamentally, I, according to scripture, am an elder, one of the people that God has gifted to lead the church with other people. Here is the question, though. How do we find elders in the church? Well, we pray for wisdom. We study God's word, especially 1 Timothy and Titus, and we see who meets the qualifications. In the New Testament, we find hints that the main preacher is distinct from the rest of the elders. There are a number of references in the New Testament to preaching and preachers that would not apply to all elders in a congregation. For example, in the church at Corinth, Paul gave himself exclusively to preaching in a way that no staff could. Most likely, the church could only support a limited number of elders full-time. Preachers seem to move to an area just to preach, whereas elders seem to be part of the local community. However, we must remember that the preacher or the pastor is also fundamentally one of the elders of his congregation. And this means that many decisions involving the church, not requiring the attention of all members in the church, should fall not 
to the pastor alone, but to elders as a whole. And at times, this can be cumbersome. However, it has an immense benefit of rounding out the pastor's gifts, making up for his deficiency, supplementing his judgment, and creating a congregational support for all decisions that are made, which leaves leaders less exposed to unjust criticism. It also makes the leadership more rooted and permanent and allows for more mature continuity, and it encourages the church to take more responsibility for the spiritual growth of its own members, and it helps make the church less dependent on its employees. Many churches today have confused elders with church staff, so elders as, okay, this is our staff of our church, or even with deacons. Deacons do fulfill a New Testament office, as we talked about last week, and it's rooted in Acts chapter 6. The concern of the deacons are practical details of church life. They were never meant to be a governing body in the church. Deacons should have responsibility for administration and for maintenance and the care of church members with physical needs. In many churches today, deacons have taken on a spiritual role, but much has been left to the pastor as the spiritual role person in the church. And many of our churches have this problem distinguishing the role of elder from that of a deacon. And they don't understand that there's a difference. And they don't understand that the scripture clearly delineates between deacon and elder. And when you think of a church leader today, what do you think of? What do you think of? You probably, if it's you and you've grown up in a Southern Baptist church, you might think of a deacon. Or you might think of a pastor. Listen to what O.S. Guinness writes in Dining with the Devil as he laments over churches that have given into secularizing influences and the way they choose leaders. This is what he says. In distinct contrast to the widespread conservative fallacy of the 80s, the sharpest challenge of, mo- of modernity is not secularism, but secularization. Secularism is a philosophy. Secularization is a process. Whereas the philo- philosophy is obviously hostile and touches only a few, the process is largely invisible and touches many. Being openly hostile, secularism rarely deceives Christians. Being much more subtle, secularization often deceives Christians before they are aware of it, including those in the church growth movement. How else can one explain the comment of a Japanese businessman to a visiting Australian? When he said, whenever I meet a Buddhist leader, I meet a holy man. Whenever I meet a Christian leader, I meet a manager. Instead of searching for leaders with secular qualifications, the church is supposed to be searching for people of character and people of reputation, and people with the ability to handle the Word of God and demonstrate the fruit of the Spirit 
in their lives. That's who the church is supposed to be searching for when they're looking for leaders. Not someone that, that knows how to do all the secular work. Part of finding good leaders is finding those whom the congregation can trust and those who can trust the congregation. Those who can have enough faith in the congregation's decision and commitments leaders that can or committed leaders that can work with the congregation and with each other. Perhaps that is why Paul in 2 Timothy chapter 3 emphasized how the elders deal with his family because that reveals so much about him and how he would actually work as an elder. It's interesting to take note how many of the qualifications that are laid out for an elder actually have to do with giving oneself in service to others. Elders are to be others-centered. They are to be innocent in their observable conduct. Their marriage and family is to be exemplary. They are to be self-controlled in all they do. They are to be respectable. They are to be hospitable. And they are to be able to teach. They are not to be violent or drunkards or quarrelsome or greedy. They are to be a, not to be a recent convert. They are to be well-respected by those that are outside and inside the church. This is what it is to be a good shepherd of the church of God. Elders are not to fleece the flock in their own self-interest, but are to care for each other and the sheep. One last qualification for pastors or elders, and that is this, that they must be men. They must be men. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 12. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. Titus chapter 1, verses 6 through 9. Sometimes this idea that only men can be pastors or elders is misunderstood. First, let's be clear that all Christians are gifted by God for the building up of the body. And we believe that all Christians teach each other by their singing and in the relationships that Paul lays out for us in Titus chapter 2. However, we must answer the question of gender in church leadership positions because the scripture obviously deals with gender in church leadership. Women are highly honored in Scripture. Men and women both are made in the image of God. Furthermore, we know that God has used women in expressing truth about who He is. We read about Miriam singing in Exodus 15. We read about Hannah praying in 1 Samuel chapter 2. We read about Mary glorifying the Lord in Luke chapter 1 verses 46 through 51. Deborah was raised up as a judge in the Old Testament in Judges chapter 5. This was not a normal appointment for a woman. Both Elizabeth and Anna prophesied publicly about the coming of Christ in Luke chapter 1 verses 42 through 45 and Luke chapter 2 verse 38. It would seem that scripture does not bar a woman from teaching men through an occasional prayer or prophecy, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, nor in personal conversation, as we see with Aquila and Priscilla and Apollos in Acts chapter 18, verse 26. However, the choice for men as public preachers of God's word is consistent with the role that God has assigned to men in bearing his image as elders and as husbands. Most men are not elders, And many men, like Jesus and Paul, are not married. 
But both husbands and elders are to model something of God's own authority. And this is reinforced and it's not contradicted when the adult teaching ministry of a church is conducted by qualified and gifted men. Now, in today's egalitarian gender-fluid times, we must unashamedly embrace gender as a gift from God. All gender, male and female, is a gift from God, as Genesis 1 and 2 clearly demonstrates for us. Furthermore, the two genders in their interrelated roles are a signpost and a clue about the larger meaning of life. That's what Paul is saying in Ephesians chapter 5. He seems to be saying that God did not give us the church to teach us about marriage, but that God gave us marriage in order to teach us about the church. It would seem that egalitarianism today is closely aligned with anti-authoritarianism, making authority itself condemned. However, Scripture presents a different view, one in which says that the authority comes from God. And God alone is the sovereign Lord, and all authority is entrusted by Him, Ephesians 3.15. Just because someone abuses something that is good does not mean that that thing is bad. Authority, as God intends, is to be good, even life-giving. And proper biblical submission can also be life-giving. The submission of children to parents, of wives to husbands, of members to elders, all point to the submissions of humans to God. Ultimately, we have life because of eternal of the eternal son's submission to the heavenly father's will. It is an absolute lie from hell and from Satan to say that submission is somehow inherently demeaning to people. Because that's not what scripture teaches. It is therefore appropriate and right that the church limits the role of public teaching to men, which is a symbol of the authority that God has called men to normally bear. And according to 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 12, it is especially important that men demonstrate their authority in the church, in the public teaching of the word of God, which is why Paul writes, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. The whole point is that man has been appointed as the public teacher in scripture now the question of whether only men should be pastors or elders has become a hot button issue it's become a hot button issue even in southern baptist churches the real distinguishing factor is found in those who will accommodate scripture to the culture and to those who instead shape their lives according to the scripture the air of egalitarianism, which holds to the idea that there are no gender distinctions in the biblical offices of the church, is like any other air that creeps into the church. It undermines the authority of the scripture in evangelical churches. And when the authority of scripture begins to be undermined, you are on a slippery slope leading to a point where the gospel will eventually not be acknowledged. Therefore, love for God, love for the gospel, and for future generations demands that we carefully 
present the teaching of Scripture that the leadership of the local church, as far as pastors and elders are concerned, is within the realm of being a man-only office. If you say, well, I don't like that, Pastor. Don't take it up with me. Take it up with God who put it down in the Scripture. Because it's not my rule. It's one that He clearly made. And we don't have the right to pick and choose what we think applies and what we think does not apply, especially in concerning of the New Testament Scripture. Number two, the charismatic nature of church leadership. Now, when I say charismatic, I'm not speaking of some sort of supernatural experience like speaking in tongues. The Greek word charisma simply means a gift of grace and particularly a gift of God's grace. In the Bible, it's clear that God's Spirit gives His church gifts in order to build His people up in their faith. Even our salvation as Christians is referred to as charisma, a gift of grace. Grace. The gifts of the Holy Spirit are specific examples of grace, which, whether it's our salvation or of God's other gifts to his children. Paul speaks of the gifts of Christians or of Christ's righteousness in Romans 5.17 and the gift of eternal life in Romans 6.23. The righteousness of Christ is God's charisma to us, but according to Scripture, there are also more specific examples of God's gifts. In Romans 11, Paul speaks specifically of the gifts that God gave to the people of Israel. In Romans 12, he mentions some specific gifts God gives to the church. When he says this, Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, then one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Now note that all these gifts are for the benefit of others. In 1 Corinthians, Paul refers to teaching, encouraging, and giving generously, and leadership, and showing mercy as grace gifts. He addresses the Corinthian Christians as those who have been enriched in every way and who do not lack any spiritual gift. And when we read through this letter, we find a number of spiritual gifts mentioned in 1 Corinthians. And in in chapter 7, verse 7, Paul calls celibacy even, a marriage uh, and marriage spiritual gifts. In fact, one of the reasons that Paul wrote to the church at Corinth was to instruct them on spiritual gifts. He tells them that in chapter 12. He then goes on in that same chapter to list extraordinary gifts. And Paul said, the Spirit gives them to each one as he has determined them in verses 27 through 31. He gives another list of spiritual gifts and concludes by instructing the Corinthians to eagerly desire the greater gifts. 2 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 11, Paul refers to his physical deliverance as a charisma, a grace gift. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 14. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 6. He refers to Timothy's calling to the ministry as a gift. As he said to the Ephesians, we have every spiritual blessing in Christ. All of these gifts have an overall theme to them. Paul understood that gifts were given for the encouraging and the building up of each other. In 1 Corinthians 12. 
4 through 7, Paul makes it clear that these gifts are given for common good. In 1 Corinthians 14, he gives us the most obvious teaching on the purpose of spiritual gifts. If we look at what's often misunderstood in verse 4, which says this, the one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. Now, that's not a neutral statement by Paul. He's not saying there are two different kinds of good edification. He's not saying that if you want self-edification, then you seek to pray and speak in tongues. And if you want church edification, you should seek to prophesy. That's not what he's saying. In verse 1, Paul has encouraged these Christians to specifically desire the gift of prophecy. And then in verse 12, he tells them that since you are eager for manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel in the building up of the church. Then in verse 19, he says, nevertheless, in the church, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. Paul says that you have to be able to understand something in order to be edified By it. Intelligibility is necessary for the edification of the church. Paul is saying that is the goal of all spiritual gifts. So every time that charisma, every time a spiritual gift is used in the New Testament, the concept is that gifts are being used in order to build up the body of Christ. It's always for the building up of the church in some way, shape, or form. Now, the goal of all these spiritual gifts, Paul states clearly, is the strengthening of the church. That's why the Spirit gives them. And so in 1 Corinthians 14, 4, when Paul is not encouraging two kinds of edification, he is criticizing any kind of self-serving use of gifts. And he's redefining what the goal of our gifts are. He's realigning the purpose of the Corinthians with the purpose of the Spirit, which is in order to build up the church of God. So you're probably saying, what in the world does that mean for me? Big whoop-de-doo. You took a long time to talk about spiritual gifts. It means a lot to us. Because if the goal is edification, what's that mean for the church? What it means is that you should value the gifts that clearly build up the church. Furthermore, we must realize how important our Christian life is to the building up of the body of Christ. Not just organizationally, but the building of one another in love and concern and prayers. We are called to initiate... Understand this, we are called to initiate involvement in one another's lives as believers. You've been hearing me say this for weeks now. As I've talked about covenant membership, you and I are called called to initiate some sort of involvement in each other's lives lives, to be a community that covenants together to work and to pray for unity, to walk together in love, to watch over one another faithfully, to admonish each other when we need admonishing, to entreat one another as the occasion may require, to assemble together, which is why we are here this morning, to pray for each other, to rejoice and to bear with one another, and to pray for God's help in all things. That is what Paul is saying. Now just imagine, for a moment, two congregations. 
One has a bunch of people speaking in tongues, and the other a bunch of young people attending a funeral of an older man that they had come to know as a church member. The second church is actually more charismatic than the first, in the biblical sense. The second church is a demonstration of the New Testament church, because it displays community, where people have learned to love one another. That is what God is calling us to be a part of. Christianity is not some individualistic decision to come to church to see what I can get out of church. That's not Christianity. It's not like, well, I'm going to go to church and I'm going to see what I'm going to get out of it. It's not the preacher is your life coach. As long as it benefits you, you're going to listen to him. That's not Christianity. Christianity, in the New Testament sense, has a lot to do with our relationships with people that are sitting in the pew next to you or the pews around you. That's Christianity. We are to care for them. We are to have concern over them. We are to go to church and say, I care for my brother and sister in Christ, and I am concerned for them. We are to covenant together with them and uh, have a willingness, willingness to make our commitment to God fleshed out in our commitment to one another. You are to be committed to each other. That is what defines a healthy church according to the New Testament. So the charismatic nature of church leaderships or of the church means that God's Holy Spirit is working among us so that we will love and care for one another. It is a grace gift. It's kind of hard to care for and love one another when you don't know nothing about one another. Isn't it? It's kind of hard to care for and love one another when you don't speak to one another except for on Sunday morning. And then if somebody doesn't show up, maybe they miss two or three weeks and you don't even, you don't even notice. Because... For whatever reason, we're not connected with one another. That's what Paul's speaking to. Christianity, Christian, is not you showing up on Sunday morning and warming a pew up. It's not what it is. It's a grace gift. For someone to get up and lead music on Sunday morning. It's a grace gift for someone to read scripture to those that are in the hospital. It is a grace gift to take the minutes in a church business meeting. It is a grace gift to teach Hebrew or Greek. It is a grace gift to write a note or send a text message or send out an email or make a phone call to your pastor and to tell him, hey, I'm praying for you, brother. Those are all grace gifts according to the New Testament. Paul never intended to give some sort of exhaustive list in the 17 gifts he listed. The point is that whenever the church is working by the power of the Holy Spirit for the building up of the body, the gifts of the Spirit are then present in the body of Christ. And so if you look around and you say, boy, we don't have those gifts present in our body, that would be an indication that we are not healthy. 
Any understanding that we have of biblical church leadership must also be in that context. So elders, grace gift. Pastor, grace gift. Meaning to stand in a pulpit week after week after week and to prepare messages day after day after day and to care for the flock the best that you can possibly care for them is a grace gift. And as a church, leadership is exercised in a covenanted congregational context. Say that fast. Covenanted congregational context context that is specially equipped by God that is the character that is the charismatic nature of church leadership now let's move on the Christ likeness of church leadership I gotta talk even faster we read that Christ himself is the head of the body the church that he alone is a cornerstone and the capstone and that Christ is ultimately the leader of the church universal and every particular local congregation, Christ is a leader. So we should not be surprised then that inside a local congregation that the leaders inside the congregation should reflect the character of Christ in something of his roles and responsibility. Now in the book, Nine Marks of a Healthy Church, there's a mnemonic device that's given to help us remember four aspects of Christ's leadership. It's called BOSS. That probably makes some of you cringe already. BOSS, I don't want anybody to be BOSS. It is illustrated by four triangles pointed in four directions. BOSS represents four roles that Jesus filled as a leader and that he calls leaders, elders today, to fill in the local church. Now these aspects of leadership can apply to many walks of life, but we're going to talk about them in the context of being a Christian and exercising leadership in a congregational context. So if you're able to do so, you can take your fingers and you can make yourself a triangle, right? So you can do that. And now we got a triangle. And if we make a triangle, whether it's this way or this way or whatever, at the top of our triangle is the first one, which is boss. That's the top of the triangle. Christ commanded many things. All through scripture, he commanded us to instruct others. Paul also commanded many things. He told Christians to tell others what to do. He also instructed elders to decide what should be taught and to do this with gentleness and patience and endurance. Elders must teach carefully because God will hold us responsible for how faithful we've been to his word. And so clearly church leaders, like any other leaders, must sometimes command making decisions and taking responsibility for those decisions. Now, some people today are extremely uncomfortable with this, right? But Jesus clearly instructed his followers and that includes us to do the same, to teach and to give instructions and to be willing to exercise authority when he calls us to do so. This kind of leadership shouldn't be avoided. Granted, it can be abused. And sometimes it is abused. But that doesn't make it a bad thing. Authority itself is a good thing. 
there has to be authority. And we can help recover godly respect for authority by exercising it carefully. Somebody has to make commands. Somebody has to make decisions. Somebody has to give instructions. And in the scripture, that is given to the elders. So you have boss at the top. And if we take our triangle and we turn it to our right. So if I take my triangle, my little triangle, and I turn to my right, right? So this one over here is now, pointing to the right, is now out front. So B is boss, O is out front. That's another part of leadership, being out front, taking initiative, setting the example. A lot of leadership is example setting and initiative taking. Alexander the Great was so great because he led his troops into the most dangerous parts of the battle. In World War II, the German tank commander named Rommel, the Desert Fox, followed in Alexander's footsteps. Rommel was often in front of his troops, which was unusual for a general when a battle uh, was going on. And when the battle would take place, Rommel would be in the lead, and they cried, Rommel in the lead! And that message galvanized his troops to follow him. Good leaders will take the initiative. Another part of that is example setting. Jesus said in John 13, 34, as I have loved you, you must also love one another. Paul wrote that our attitude is to be the same as that of Christ Jesus. Peter told some of the early Christians to remember that Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. To the Corinthians, to the Corinthian Christians, Paul wrote, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. Paul specifically told the Thessalonian believers that labored to make himself a model that they could follow. Paul deliberately worked to live a model life, not a perfect life, but an exemplary one. Paul offered his own life as an example, leading out in front, showing others how it is to be done. That is what leaders in the church are to do today. As part of our leadership, we are to be examples. Now take your triangle. So we went top was boss. We went to the right was out front. Now if we take it, we turn it to the left. Okay, this is now supply. So pointing to the left, supply. Supply. It's part of leadership. Envision an army with a supply line stretched out. Good leaders strategically work to give shape and focus and freedom to the work that others are called to do. Leaders are like traffic directors. They direct the traffic of the church cutting ministry into bite-sized bits that others are able to do. And so if we're called to be suppliers, that means that we have to go behind the lines and give people the tools that they need to get to go out themselves. Jesus prepared his disciples, and then he sent them out. In Luke 9, they failed. And Jesus sends them out again in Luke chapter 10, and they succeeded. In this example, Jesus was back behind the lines, supplying and equipping others. Now, we may not be able to go with the people we send out. Our situation is like Paul, when in his last letter, he instructed Timothy to teach those who can teach others. Paul understood that his ministry would be greatly multiplied as he supplied the resources for others to do their ministry. So, we have boss at the top. We have out front on the right. We have supply on the left. Now, if we point it down, take our triangle, point it down, we have serve. Serve. Leaders are called to serve. It's the second S in boss. 
It's probably the most distinctly Christian aspect of church leadership. We see it in Christ fully as he gave himself up for us on the cross, dying for us so that we might live for him. We have all kinds of moving descriptions of self-sacrificial service throughout the Gospels. This is the example that Christ left when he said this, So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder, Peter speaking here, and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you. Exercise oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Listen, all four of these aspects of leadership, boss, commanding, out front, supply of what's needed, and the serving will be part of biblical church leadership. All of them. They have to be part of biblical church leadership. But the pastor can't fill every single one of those roles. He can't do it. So I'm telling you that I can't do it by myself. So look at the last thing this morning. The relationship of church leaders to God's nature and character. So as we wrap up this final message in our series on being a healthy church, I want us to consider how it is that we exercise biblical leadership and how it relates to the nature and character of God. It's not a matter of church politics. So often we treat it that way, but that's not what it is. It's not like we have a little governmental system in church, like we have to have checks and balances for everything so we can balance the power of authority. For various reasons, so many people have arrived at the conclusion that authority is bad, but it's not. Power separated from God's purpose is demonic. But to hold to the view that in an in action that all authority is bad is a faulty view. To hold the view that, we, oh, we can't give certain people authority because it's bad is wrong. It often reveals more of the person that questions authority than the authority that's being questioned. If we are to live as God has meant us to live, then we must trust God and we must trust those that he has placed in authority who are made in his image. Now, to be clear, I'm not saying that we should just be gullible, nor am I saying that to question authority makes you ungodly. What I'm saying is that the capacity to trust is a crucial component in reflecting the image of God and of operating within the relationships of life in which that image is played out and expressed. In Ephesians 3.14, Paul is praying for the Christians at Ephesus, and he tells them that he prayed to the Father for whom his whole family in heaven and on earth derives its name. Paul is not simply pointing out that God is the father of his church, but that God is the creator who has made us in his image, and that even the very social structures of all authority are made in the image of God. So authority and leadership are not just matters of indifference, like, oh, well, it doesn't matter. They are to be matters of great concern for us. A world with no authority in it would like having would be like having desires with no restraints. It'd be like having a car with no controls. It'd be like having intersections without traffic lights, like a game with no rules, like a home without parents. 
gasp. It might go on great for a little while, right? You might even have a little bit of fun. But before too long, it seems pointless and then cruel and then it ends very tragically. We must have authority. Listen to 2 Samuel 23, 3-4. It's such a great picture of authority. The God of Israel has spoken. The rock of Israel has said to me, when one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, he dawns on them like the morning light, like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. What a picture of healthy authority. Our family is our training ground in loving authority. It is a place that God has given us to learn love and respect and honor and obedience and trust in order to prepare us for relating to others and ultimately to God. Our conduct in the church in regard to this matter of leadership is to be such that the gospel is not brought into disrepute. But rather, it is held to be the glorious light of hope and truth in the world. Our lives are to be as pure as they can be so that God's heart of love for the world will shine clearly through us. And that's what we need to do. Concerning church leadership, eldership is the biblical idea. It has a practical value. If implemented in our church, it will help me immensely by removing the weight from my shoulders and even removing any petty tyrannies that might exist from our church. Furthermore, the character qualities listed by Paul for eldership, aside from the ability to teach, are qualities every Christian should be working towards. If we publicly affirm certain individuals as exemplary, then it helps to present a model for other Christians, especially Christian men. Indeed, the practice of recognizing godly, discerning trusted laymen as elders is another mark of a healthy church. Men, what I want you to do is think about this for just a moment. Because I strongly believe we need elders in our church. So don't just assume that you're qualified. I'm going to give you six qualifications real quick. And what I want you to do is I want you to reflect on these qualifications. And then I want you to talk to your friends and your wife. And even your pastor, if these qualifications describe you, ask them, is this a description of me? If they do, I want you to come and talk to me and say, Pastor, I believe that I'm qualified. Number one, first qualification, you want to be an elder. First Timothy 3, 1 Timothy 3.1 If anyone aspires to be an overseer, he desires a noble work. Peter put it this way, shepherd God's flock among you, not overseeing out of compulsion, but freely according to God's will. You actually have to want to be an elder to be an elder. Right? I wanted to be a pastor. I wasn't like, ah, I wonder what I'm going to do in my life. And then you all called me up. I'm like, ah, that sounds great. Guess I'll be a pastor. That's not how it works. You actually have to want to be an elder. Number two, you exemplify godly character. Read 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 2 through 3, and Titus 1, 7 and 8. These virtues must describe you. They must fit you. If not, then you are not qualified. If you want to know what they mean, come and see me and say, hey, what do these things mean? Number three, you can teach the Bible. You can teach the Bible. Paul said an overseer must be an able teacher. Ask yourself, have I instructed others from God's word with notable effect? Number four, you lead your family well. Your home life matters immensely. Have you been sexually faithful to your wife? Do you frequent pornographic websites? 
No one has a fairy tale or fiction-free wedding. But if your marriage is limping or even worse, you've had a marriage failure in the past, you should talk with someone that's wise before seeking eldership. Also, are you an effective father? You must manage your house. Number five, you are a male. God has called only men to be church elders. Number six, and lastly, you are an established believer. If you're a recent convert, focus on seeking your roots deeply in Christ. Watch out for spiritual pride. Paul cautioned against new Christians serving as elders. We must not be a new convert or he might be conceited and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Is that you? I want you men to read 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 7. I want you to go somewhere, and I want you to read it out loud. These are my instructions to you, men in our church. Go somewhere private, read the verses out loud, and ask yourself, does this describe me? Ask others, does this describe me? If the qualifications I just gave describe you, then please come talk with me because I truly believe the time is now for us to be a healthy, biblical church. Listen, church, this is a tremendous call that God gives us to recognize and respect godly authority in the church. This is a sign of a healthy church and of healthy Christians. This is our call. This is, this is who we are to be. There is a world that needs to be see people made in the image of God, living out the image of God in this way. So let's pray that we can do that together in our church for the health of our church and for the glory of God. Will you do it? Will you do it? Perhaps you say, Pastor, I know someone like that. Would you come and talk with me I'm not afraid to have hard conversations so trust me if you think you're qualified and I don't I'll have no problem telling you you're not it's, it's okay because at this point there's one elder in our church and that's me and I can't make all the decisions as scripture is commanded elders to do and so I ask you men stop and think do what I've asked you to do and if you're qualified let's get in gear on being a healthy church maybe you're here this morning you say pastor that's me I've been I've been praying about this I've been I've been thinking about it I preach through Hebrews for that reason and maybe maybe you know it's you maybe you've already studied maybe you you know I would ask you to come talk to me. Maybe you just want to come and pray this morning and say, Lord, reveal to me if, if, if that's me. Maybe you need to come and talk and say, I've, I've, never, I've never even placed my trust in Christ. If God's spoken to you this morning, I want to give you the opportunity to respond before we take communion this morning. Let's close with prayer. Father.